loving, loving Sai Ram, Sister Ramya Gopinath Rao, the Sri Satya Sai Global Council, Trinidad and Tobago, lovingly welcomes you to the series Awake, Unite and Inspire. We are extremely happy, privileged and honored to have you as our guest on this evening's program. Sister Ramya, can we begin with how did you first come into contact with our beloved Mother Sai? Saram, Brother Faiz, I would like to begin by offering my most loving and humble pranams at the lotus feet of my beloved Lord, Bhagavan Sri Satya Sai Baba, who is the inner motivator of all and the indweller who guides our lives. Sairam, Sairam, Brother Faiz, and thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this very inspiring series. Uh, so glad to be with you. And um, let me start by uh, sharing a little bit of my initial journey to Swami as you requested. So, you know, actually when I was thinking about it, um, I think my, our family's association with Swami uh, begins with my mother and her maternal aunt, uh, her maternal, uh, my maternal aunt, her cousin, uh, married the nephew of the Rani of Chincholi, who um, many of us have heard from Satyam Shivam Sundaram. And starting in the late 1950s, um, my mother and early 60s, my mother had darshan and sparshan of Swami when he came to visit uh, my aunt's house in Bangalore. She tells me that my first darshan of Swami was when I was two, when he came to that same house to perform the upanayanam or thread ceremony of my two cousins, um, her children. So, and just a little bit of other background, uh, just to set the stage, you know, in December of, uh, but we, we lived in Canada. So when I was uh, very small, so I was three years old, we uh, uh, emigrated to Canada and that's where I grew up. And so after that initial uh, darshan that I had, which I don't remember, um, I don't remember having any sort of contact with Swami personally until much later. However, we always had a picture of Swami in our, on our family altar. And, um, you know, so he was familiar only in that way. But I have to say that at that time, I did not feel any particular connection uh, with this picture or with Swami. Now, in December of 1991, uh, my parents had uh, visited um, India and he, uh, Swami um, called them for an interview. And in that interview, he told them many things about our family. That was, I think, one of the, perhaps the first uh, interview that both of them had had together. And, uh, and, and in that interview, asked my father to come back to India, to wind up his surgical practice, come back to India and work in the new super specialty hospital that had just come up. So, they came back to Canada and immediately made preparations to do just this. There was no hesitation on their part. And I think, you know, despite me maybe not registering it so much in that uh, at that time, there was a lesson there for me as well. So Swami tells us that, 
you know, for faith to awaken in our hearts, there have to be three things, uh, karmamu, kalamu, and karanamu. So all of your past associations and journey has to create the right set of circumstances. The time, kalamu, has to be right. And finally, there has to be something that sets this whole um, sort of bonfire of faith ablaze. And in my case, that spark was my very transformative experience in 1995 when I was very fortunate and blessed to be part of the summer course in Indian culture and spirituality that Swami ran every summer for his students in India. And it was very strange the way that it happened because, um, you know, there was a group of girls who were going from the U.S. Uh, to attend the summer course. Now, I was living in Canada at the time, but through a series of, you know, very interesting circumstances, I was fortunate to be included in this group. And I can tell you, uh, you know, how far away I was at that time from, uh, you know, from Swami in a sense, because I actually thought about it. I wondered whether I should do this or not. And so somebody much wiser than me fortunately said, told me that, you know, if you are included in this, and at that time, all of the names had to be approved by Swami, then Swami means you to come. And that was the, the best decision I ever made because uh, we had two weeks of sheer bliss. I mean, I, we were treated exactly like um, Swami's students. We heard him speak every day. Um, the theme that year was the Bhagavatam. So he talked every day and uh, we heard other very learned people also talk to us. We were given interesting uh, tasks such as um, pulling up the weeds in the compound around Trai Brindavan. And we were given the opportunity to sing bhajans or lead bhajans in Sai Ramesh Hall. And most of all, he actually interacted with us twice. And in one of those um, interviews, he gave me, gave all of us the opportunity to ask a question. Now, remember I told you that my, he had asked my parents to come back to India. Well, no sooner had my, had my parents done that than my father began to become ill. And in retrospect, it was very clear that Swami had been very specific for my father's protection and for all of our protection. But at the time I was extremely worried. And so when Swami gave me a chance to ask him a question, that's all I could think about. Swami, my father is ill, what to do? And Swami said, you come, you come and look after father. So luckily I had the, the, uh, you know, the impulse at the time to say, when Swami, when shall I come? And he said, come for birthday. And then he turned to everybody else and he said, all of you come for birthday. So this was in May of 1995. And the background here also is that in July of 1995, I was supposed to start a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Institutes of Health in, in the US. So at that time I had finished my residency, finished my infectious disease fellowship. And um, you know, I was very excited to start this uh, fellowship at the NIH. It was, you know, quite a prestigious thing coming from Canada, etc. And, and I thought it was the next step in my career. But here was Swami telling me to come in November and, you know, look after my father, which I was glad to do. 
but he didn't say how long to stay. He didn't say what I should do when I got there. He didn't say anything. He moved on to other topics. And that, that was all that I was left with. And so um, I think that, um, you know, fortunately for me, I think, as I said, this experience just somehow opened the floodgates and Swami completely captured my heart. So there was no question of saying no or no question of refusing. And so I came back to Canada and made preparations to move back to, uh, to India in November. And at that time, you know, many people asked me, okay, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you sure, um, you know, you're giving up uh, quite an opportunity here and so on and so forth. And I, I somehow, I think it is Swami's grace when he calls you, he also gives you the strength and the um, conviction to follow through. And it was purely because of Swami's grace. I think I was very firm about it. And, um, you know, uh, and then I called my uh, erstwhile boss, the one who was the, the lab chief of the lab in which I was supposed to work. And I explained the situation to him. I said, you know, Tom, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to come in July. Um, uh, you know, these are the circumstances and I have to go. He was very understanding and, um, you know, it was a brief conversation, but he completely understood. So I went about my business, but could not um, help but feel a little regretful that, you know, such an opportunity was, was gone because many people um, looked for those things and it wasn't always easy to come by. But then, you know, two weeks later, um, Tom called me again and he said, you know, something has been really prompting me to look into this and to inquire further because we've never done anything like this. But I think I have it all figured out now. How would you like to work for us, but stay in India? And so, um, you know, it was, it was, I was so flabbergasted and it was something that I'd never thought was even possible. But there he was, um, you know, this is something that had never been done, his lab or the, the division had never done something like this, but something prompted him to make those inquiries and make it possible for me to take the position, but stay in India and work there for the NIH lab and, um, you know, to, to be able to take care of my father and to kind of continue my career. And so, you know, for me, that was such a profound experience because it taught me like nothing else could have that when you put your faith in Swami and you do exactly as he asks, it may not, you may not sort of know where this is going or what it's leading to. It almost feels sometimes like you're jumping off a cliff, but you just do it. And when you do it, you know, he will open all sorts of doors for you and take care of all the other things. So it was such a, such a profound experience. I, I've, I've, I've never forgotten it. And it's, I think, guided, um, guided the rest of my journey in many ways. So that's how I came. Sairam. Sister Ramya, that was so beautiful and inspiring. And what really stood out is your adherence implicitly to follow his request without asking a question. And that is really amazing. You know, sometimes there's a tendency 
when the ego gets involved to want to in order to pursue what the ego wants we tend to want to make an excuse or create a situation you know but here are you in a situation implicitly following swami's instructions and then look at the grace that came with the opportunity that was presented to you to work in india and still be able to look after the request that swami made really really wonderful so sister share with us i know you've had many many wonderful experiences with mother sai over the years and sometimes when i ask this particular question to devotees there's so many and sometimes it's a little bit challenging to pick you know two of the most memorable ones but share with us two of the most memorable experiences you've had with our mother sai yeah, thank you, Brother Fies. It's a lovely question, and as you say, you know, sometimes it's hard to hard to hard to choose. But um, I have to say that uh, you know, the two that I I wanted to share today have uh, sort of real messages within them. So I thought maybe it will be helpful uh, for others as well. So I think the first one that I I would like to share is 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 a very sweet um, episode, which just kind of um, makes your heart melt with the love of Mother Sai. So, you know, uh, as I said, when, um, when, when I was at the summer course, I was just about, I, I then subsequently began my time at the NIH. I spent five years there. During the time that I was at NIH, I got married and had both of my children during that time. Now, <clears throat> When uh, we were expecting our first child, um, you know, we had uh, read, my husband and I had read so much, um, you know, we were reading more and more about Swami. Uh, we were very fortunate to be, uh, to live very close to uh, Gita Mohan Ram, which I will get back to a little later on, but uh, she has played a huge role in our lives and, and somehow Swami has communicated many things to us through her. But um, she told us so many things about Swami and there was always the sweetness of how he would interact with people, how he would be part of their lives. And so when we were expecting our first child, we'd heard so many stories and, uh, you know, read about how he would uh, name children. And uh, we thought, wow, you know, what an amazing thing that would be, you know, how as a parent, uh, as especially as a first time parent, you think that, you know, you it's everything is so new and so beautiful in many ways. And we you only uh, sort of want everything good for your child. And so we were thinking, wow, it would be so nice if Swami would name our child. But, you know, we thought, OK, there's just no way because you know, we, here we are, you know, Swami's over there. I mean, there's no way he is even aware of us. I mean, where would we even have that opportunity? So we thought anyway, you know, that summer um, in July, uh, Gita and her family were making a trip to India. My son was born in August. So in July or June, I think they went, uh, we wrote a letter, my husband and I, um, and we chose five boys' names and five girls' names. And we wrote a letter to Swami and we said, Swami, we are expecting our first child. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl, 
but please, you know, bless us uh, and bless the child. And so we've just put these, uh, these five girls' names, five boys' names, and, you know, just folded the letter, put it in an envelope, tucked the flap in, we didn't seal it. And we asked Gita whether she would take it and offer it to Swami. And she said, um, yes, I will take it. But, um, you know, sometimes Swami does not like other people giving other people's uh, letters. In fact, he had made a specific uh, comment to her on one of her previous trips when she had taken, you know, letters from center members and so on. So she said, I will try, um, but I can't promise anything. So we said, yep, understood. You know, as long as even if he takes the letter, we will consider that the biggest blessing and we will just choose one of the names um, from that list. So we sent the letter, um, she went and then, you know, we were, I was getting closer to the end of my pregnancy. So what she told us later on was when she went to Prashanti Nilayam, Swami was already out the day that they arrived, that he was out for darshan. So they went to their room, you know, just put all their uh, luggage and ran to Sai Kulwant Hall. And Swami, uh, you know, always so thrilled to see them, he called them immediately in for an interview. And so they spent about, or he spent about an hour uh, with them, you know, with the whole family asking and, you know, so lovingly. But when they left, Gita had uh, realized that she had left my letter with her luggage in her room. So she was feeling really bad because she thought, okay, you know, Swami called us already. I didn't have a chance to take this, you know, you know, she was feeling bad about it. So anyway, um, the next day she remembered to take the letter, but thought, okay, if I get a chance in, if he comes near to me as, I, as I'm sitting in the line, maybe I can offer it. So she uh, had the letter with her and lo and behold, Swami called them again into the interview room. And I remember Gita telling us that she was very surprised because they already had had a long interview the day prior. So, you know, in, in, in uh, you know, Gita was saying, you know, I don't know what else there was for him to tell us. And so, but nonetheless, he called them in and a very short interview. Uh, and within a, a few minutes, he was ushering them out the door again. And again, she forgot to, um, you know, the impact of Swami's presence, she forgot to uh, offer him the letter. So as she was passing him at the door on the way to go out, he said, didn't your friend give you a letter? And then she realized and she said, oh, yes, Swami, here it is. Here it is. And so he took the letter from her and opened it. We had not sealed it. So the flap, you know, he opened the flap, took out the letter, read it, and then folded it back, put it back in the envelope and handed it back to Gita. So this in itself was a little odd because um, Swami almost never hands back letters. When he takes it, he takes it. And so uh, this was an, a little unusual, but they were leaving. So they didn't have any chance to think about it. And as they walked back, um, she and her mother, she realized that um, the envelope was sealed. And remember that it had been open when, when she had offered it to Swami, but now it was sealed. And so she was even more puzzled. And I remember this was the days, days before the cell phone. So she called us from Prashanti Nilayam and she said, um, 
this has happened. You know, I have this letter. Uh, you know, somehow it's all sealed. Do you want us? Do you want me to send it? I will send it by mail. We said, no, no, no. Please don't uh, trust it to the mail. Just bring it when you come. And so she came. Uh, she arrived back. I think in the second week, the first or second week of August. My uh, son was born on the twentieth of August. And so when she, uh, as soon as she came, she came over to our house with the envelope. And when we opened it, Brother Fies, um, you would not believe the love of this mother, Sai, that it was the same letter that we had sent, but now there was one girl's name underlined and one boy's name underlined. And within the envelope were two gold pendants. One was a Lakshmi a coin with, with a Lakshmi on it, and the other was an Om. A figure of an om with a with a little hook for a chain and the envelope was full of vibhuti it was not in packets it was just loose vibhuti was full of vibhuti and so we were so so stunned and overcome i mean there were a lot of tears you know because this was you know really a mother responding to the yearning of another mother you know, and even now I think about it and it still brings tears to my eyes. But, you know, this is our Swami. He basically, distance is not, a, not an issue for him. And he hears everything that we say within our hearts. He is omnipresent. He's, his love is everywhere. And that was such a powerful uh, lesson for us. And so two weeks later, my son was born, so it was clear that his name was Aniruddha, and uh, the Om pendant was for him. But we had no idea what the what the Lakshmi pendant was for. But then, 18 months later, my daughter was born. Uh, her name is Samyukta, which is the other name that Swami had underlined, and it was clear that the Lakshmi pendant was for her. So that was one, uh, you know, most precious, memorable experience of mine. And uh, do, would you like me to go on and, and share the other one? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, the other one uh, that, that sort of taught me a lot, taught me a lot is the following. And so when, um, again, I was, uh, when I got married, had my children, I was at the NIH. When I was at the NIH, when I came from Canada to um, the US, I was on a J-1 visa, which is an exchange visitor visa. And so, um, you know, I had, in order to keep my immigration status, I had to sort of keep working um, at the NIH. Now, we had also started, um, as I say, understanding more, reading more, you know, listening to more talks, you know, reading Swami's literature. So it became very clear to us that Swami uh, was very particular about the role of a mother in the child's life. And um, she was, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, we came across so many instances where he says that, that nothing can replace the love and care that a mother provides to her own child, especially within the first five years of life. That is when uh, the child requires the nurturing, you know, and, and really the love and the, and the sort of care that the, the mother and the parents bring is what sort of makes a difference to the child, uh, you know, for their entire life. And he 
and I, I, I was reading uh, places where he said that that is the most important job for a woman. And so I sort of started really thinking hard about it. Like I said, my approach to Swami has been just to follow what he says and follow it implicitly because um, it has always, always been the right way to go for us. And so I started to think, okay, well, you know, if that is the case, then, you know, should I be quitting work at some point to be with my children? And again, um, you know, when I finished my time at NIH, um, some, uh, Samyukta, our daughter, uh, was just about six months old. So that was the earliest that I could actually stay home. But then at that time, I really began to think, okay, I, I need to do this because this is what Swami says. He doesn't say, I've never come across anywhere where he says, well, it's different if you're a doctor, it's different if you're a teacher, it's different if you are a, a computer person. It, you know, as far as I could tell, it was all across the board. Uh, it applied to everybody. And so I uh, really made the decision um, to stay home. I say uh, uh, in one word that I made the decision, but I can tell you that it was extremely difficult because up till then I had been very focused on my career as many of us are. And, um, you know, there were certain steps that one would have to take in one's career. I also was, uh, you know, got quite a lot of interesting comments from the other people around me when I said that I was going to stay home because uh, things like, um, oh, you can't really be that serious about your career if you're gonna if you're gonna take time off, or um, oh, I guess your husband must be making you stay home, um, you know, because of your culture. I mean, literally things like this were some of the remarks that I got, and so. But I, I felt that, okay, this was, the, this was uh, what we had to do. And my husband was very much on board uh, with it also. And so despite all of the negative um, sort of uh, input that I got from my professional colleagues and so on and so forth, I made that decision. And the reason I, that I bring this up, Brother Fies, is just to emphasize that difficult as it was, when I made that decision to stay home with my children, just took that one step, Swami responded again, a hundredfold. And, um, you know, just to cut a very long story short to get to the important point, when my daughter was about three years old, there was suddenly an opportunity to work as an infectious disease physician that literally landed in my lap. I don't want to, you know, go into all the details, but it was a lot of those side incidences that we know about. And so the opportunity just landed in my lap and it seemed like it was tailor-made, but both my husband and I were, we, we talked about it and we said, okay, maybe this is the way Swami works, but you know, Samyukta is still three years old. You know, we were gonna stay home. I was gonna stay home until she entered kindergarten. How are we gonna do this? So we were thinking, and you won't believe this is yet another example of Swami's omnipresence that uh, uh, this was around November time frame and Gita uh, again who figures largely in many of our stories here um, she was in Prashanti Nilayam for Swami's birthday that year and he came to her one day in the line and he said tell your sister to come so she was so puzzled by this whole thing first of all um, you know 
she was used to the sister part because Swami, uh, you know, for uh, soon after we got married, started referring to me as Gita's sister. So he would ask about me as her sister. He would, you know, tell you know tell her to tell me things and and things like this. And so she knew who her sister was, but she didn't know why Swami was asking us to come because she was in India. This had all happened in the U.S. and of course, again, no cell phones, so we had not been in touch. And so she called us again, you know, uh, made a trunk call from Prashanti Niliam and said, Swami is asking you to come. What is going on? So we told her very briefly that this opportunity had come up, but we were in a dilemma. We didn't know, you know, we were trying to really follow what Swami would want us to do. So she said, no, she, he told you to come uh, physically. So come. And so my husband said, well, you know, why don't you go at Christmas time? Because I have a week off go without the children because you'll never be able to sit in the front row if you take the children just go by yourself and uh, let's see what swami has in mind so so i did and went straight to prashanti niliam and swami um came right to me in the line and i knelt up and offered him a letter and i said swami shall i work and he said yes and uh, santosham and he blessed the letter and materialized vibhuti for me in the line and he said, work. And then as if to kind of uh, underscore that, he came again the next day and did exactly the same thing. And again, blessed me, blessed me completely to go to work. And so I think that, um, you know, the lesson, the, the reason that I wanted to share this is because, you know, we may think that we are making all of these sacrifices, or we may think that we have a certain idea in our head about what we want to do with our lives and that suddenly now we we have to change everything because we are mothers or or we have other responsibilities and what swami taught me so clearly is that if you do what i ask you to do and you are following the message to the best of your understanding the best of your ability and of course with the understanding that you are fortunate enough to do that because to do that, it requires not only that you have the economic circumstances to allow you to stay home, but that you have the support at home. So you have a supportive spouse, you have some other supportive network that will allow you to do those things. That is all completely understood because uh, Swami is also very practical. But assuming that all of those um, are the case, then if you follow uh, what he asks you to do, he will always, always you know, utilize whatever talent you think you have in some way. He will put it to work in a way that he thinks is best for you, not the way that you necessarily think you want to do. And so I think it was yet another um, uh, sort of demonstration of his omnipresence, of his love. You know, imagine calling me all the way just to bless me and make it so clear. He did all this for me and I, I, I was, you know, still so, so grateful and, and uh, but it taught me so much that, uh, you know, slowly he teaches you to not worry so much about what the world is saying, focus on Swami and he will guide you all throughout. Sairam. Sister Rame, that was so touching and inspiring. And, uh, you know, 
what shines through both of your experiences is this love and compassion of Mother Sai. And I can well imagine that as you shared, thousands of people would have been in Prashanti Nilayam at the time you were there. And yet Swami came to you. So it was like you and God alone for that few moments in time where his full attention, energy and love was just being poured out to you. And I can imagine how you would have felt, you know, so special that Swami actually singled you out, came to you, blessed you, not on one occasion, but on two occasions. And I'm sure that continues to resonate in your heart. So very, very beautiful. Yeah, no, it, just, just to add, Brother Fais, I mean, I think definitely it was such a precious experience, but I think it is the same, you know, I, I, I have, I know you have come across, I have certainly come across all the countless ways in which Swami shows his presence to everybody. It'll be in a way that is specific to them, that is sort of most touching for them. But, you know, these are just um, his, the, the ways that he shows us all, all of us have these experiences that he's there and he's listening and he's there um, always to help us, to support us, encourage us to follow the path that he has laid out for our own spiritual growth and good. And I think, Sister Ramya, what, what really stands out in, in your experiences there is your implicit fit to follow his teachings, to follow his directive implicitly without question. And it reminds me of a verse in the Bible, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and then everything else will be added on to you. So here are you, you know, as you said, Swami won over your heart and you wanted more than anything else to do what my Lord wants me to do. At the sacrifice of even advancing your career, more important than that was to follow implicitly his guidance. And then in doing that, look at what he's now added on to you. So that is so beautiful and inspiring. And it, it leads me to another question that, you know, especially women, Baba has spoken so much about women's role in the society, that on the laps of women lie the future of our nation, that if you want to judge the progress of a nation, look at its mothers, look at its women, mm -hmm. are they humble, are they self-sacrificing, do they lead moral and virtuous lives? And if the answer is yes, Swami says, you can be guaranteed that that will be a good nation. But also when you observe the role of women, the, the multifaceted roles that are performed, you know, as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, as a daughter-in-law, as a sister, as a sister-in-law, but even from a family perspective, um, having to take the leading role where the character development of your children is concerned. You know, Swami has also said that women have more devotion than men. They lead men on the virtuous paths when they go astray. So women are the custodians of Sanatana Dharma, of righteousness. 
So my question to you is that against that background, how have you been able to take Swami's teachings and practice it as a woman in many different roles and also as a working mother and as a professional, how have you been able to balance family with work and spirituality? Thank you for the question, Brother Faiz. It's a, it's, it's, it's a multifaceted question and it's certainly something that I think many of us, um, especially as women, you know, we, we really grapple with it. And I can tell you that uh, for me, having grown up in the West, I can tell you that my sort of understanding of this has literally gone 180 degrees because I think that when we grow up, uh, especially in the West, we're always uh, kind of, um, I think we're not only taught perhaps uh, through the educational system, but also also um, I think the environment around us is very focused on what you can achieve outside. So what uh, work you do, uh, what position you have, you know, what promotion you get, you know, what impact you have on the outside world is always sort of, um, you know, judged as something that is, uh, is, is desirable. And I think what I've learned over several years now um, is that in Swami's world, it's almost exactly the opposite. He is not so much looking at what you will achieve externally as he is looking at what your journey is internally. And I think that for women specifically, he, um, you know, here in the West, there's always um, this idea that, oh, you know, as a woman, I'm just as good as a man and I can do anything that a man does. And all that is true. But I always, you know, I, I always say that that is actually shortchanging women. I think women can do much more than um, men can do. And I think that it just is a very, um, it, it's a very important change in perspective because it's not so much that Swami really wants us as women to, uh, to make a big impact outside until and unless we have actually made an impact within. I mean, I think it's very common experience for all of us that the mother, uh, the woman is, is, is really the center of the house. I mean, it just is. I mean, all of us have grown up with that. I think it's, it's probably, the vast majority of people have that experience. And so I think that, um, you know, I've realized over time that what Swami tells us is actually, he really means it. He means that we as women are the foundation of society. And the reason that we are the foundation of society is that we bring up the building bricks of that society, which are the individuals. And so, it is only when we ourselves um, go through that sadhana, we ourselves make the inquiry to ask ourselves who we really are and what our true purpose in life is, that we can then, you know, um, sort of uh, turn that learning into care and love um, for the family. And I think that um, what Swami has taught me is that comes first and foremost. It doesn't matter what you uh, what your qualifications are particularly. He he. I, I think that is what I have understood in my own life that it doesn't really matter 
what um, what you are doing externally. Once you have a child, it is about sacrifice and it is about you know fostering that child and it is about encouraging the latent human values to blossom within that child because the mother by and large is the first teacher and uh, certainly um, you know these days fathers are also very much involved with uh, the upbringing of children or should be because there's much to learn but Swami clearly says that for the first five years um, you know the mother's care and fostering and teaching you know just by what she imparts the songs that she sings the things that she uh, exposes the child to the way she uh, sort of interacts with the child is something that that the child learns from and becomes secure as a person and then um, the all of the other things are uh, attached to that and it's only when that sense of self is very strong and secure that we can then grow up to be strong and secure human beings who are aware of the qualities within us. And so I think that, um, you know, the way that I have balanced it is with a lot of uh, cooperation from my husband. He uh, actually uh, has helped a lot over the years because, um, you know, certainly uh, I was, uh, I have been a, a, a busy infectious disease physician and there would be many times when I would be on call on the weekends and, you know, very, you know, there for, for literally two solid days. And um, my husband would literally, you know, would take care of the children, would sort of really, um, you know, even help with the cooking, so many things. And it's only when we can sort of work in partnership like that, that together, it's a feeling that together we are able to follow what Swami wants us to do. Because although he expects a lot of women and a lot from mothers, he also expects that um, fathers fulfill their responsibilities to their children, to the family, and help to create that loving and God-centered atmosphere uh, within the family. It takes, it takes both. I hope that answers. Yes, Sister Rambe, that was very, very beautifully and factually uh, stated. And, and in your case, um, you are so blessed to have a spouse that is supportive. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned that on one of your trips to India, he basically told you, well, you go, I will look after the children. Yes. And I think that, that is, yeah. yes, please go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, yes, that was the, that was the time when uh, Swami, you know, told uh, Gita to t tell your sister to come. So he was, um, you know, gracious enough to say, go by yourself because uh, it'll be much easier. You know, you won't have to manage the kids there. So that was a, a wonderful blessing. Yeah. And I think I just want to uh, pull out what you've said and reiterate it, that it is so important to recognize that in the family, the woman is not the one totally responsible for the household and taking care of the children. It is a partnership that you've said where responsibilities should be shared so that there's a loving, supportive environment for children to grow up. And also, when the child growing up in this environment sees also that partnership, that harmony, that unity, it impacts the child as well, you see, in yes. growing up. And these 
the provide the parents provide good role models now for the children as they grow up so we need to constantly emphasize that it's really a partnership and it's not a one-sided affair but when the, the father and the mother have the responsibilities and they fulfill them you know dutifully and lovingly there's no greater heaven than a family like that so thank you so much for sharing and and you are so fortunate to have a spouse who provides that kind of support and i know as you've stated you've shared he's also a doctor so he's also extremely busy with with his work and his profession yeah he's a he's a chemical engineer a phd uh, so that uh, uh, sort of a engineer doctor <laughs> if you will <laughs> So thank you very much, sister, for sharing. I think this is a very pertinent um, aspect of our development um, in the home. And as Swami said, um, he's also said that if in the family there's unity and there's love, you're going to have a good nation. So it really starts in the home with the yeah. parents, but especially the mother. So as we move on, um, you know, over the years, you would have built your own unique relationship with Swami. As each one of us, we are works in progress in terms of our contact, our relationship with that divinity. What does Sai Baba mean to you today? That's such an all-encompassing question, uh, Brother Faiz. I think he uh, he is... Uh, the absolute center of my life, and um, he is the most loving mother, as uh, you know, the incidents that I've shared uh, demonstrate. He can be a disciplinarian father as well. He, um, but uh, over time, I think um, you know, I have realized why uh, Swami says, you know, when I take care or I give you the things that you want so that at some point you will want the things that I have come to give. And I think that um, over time, I sort of, uh, you know, somehow with, with all the love and all the, the, the sort of um, the teaching, I think I have come to see him as the most divine of uh, gurus and the indweller within all. And I think, um, you know, he teaches us that we must look for him within. And I think that has been, uh, you know, what I think all of us at this point are, are really striving to do is to look for him. Uh, and, and he tells us that the place to look is not anywhere outside, but within. So he is the absolute center of my life. And I think, um, you know, the center of everything that we do as a family is, is Swami. Thank you very much, sister, for sharing that. So how has practicing the teachings of Sri Satya Sai Baba continued to impact and to transform your life? So, you know, I, uh, when, I, when I sort of reflected on this question, I, I realized that really Swami has done nothing less than reveal the purpose and the goal of our lives. I mean, that is how profound his teachings are, because, you know, when we when we grow up uh, without, 
without this uh, this perspective or this very incredible perspective we may think that the goal of life is to you know do well in our careers to you know have a comfortable life to you know be able to you know go on on nice vacations and to sort of um enjoy the 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 good things of life and i think that um what you know swami's core message is that the goal of human life is nothing short of understanding and recognizing our own innate divinity and i think that i i i think that for what that one thing alone aside from everything else that he has meant to me over the course of these last several decades i i think i am so um grateful to him because i think he really teaches us that it is not really what you do but who you are and by laying the emphasis on the who you are part over and over again he really forces us to recognize our own humanness our own own humanity the values that are in inborn within us and he slowly uh, turns our vision from you know looking all around and 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 getting distracted he slowly turns it uh inward and i think that has been sort of the biggest transformation i think that um you know just the recognition i i would not say that i'm anywhere transformed but just the recognition that you know that that vision has been turned and i think the you know i i i go back to this thing about when we are on this spiritual path you know we must recognize that he is the most divine of gurus and he is our own each of us has him as our individual guru and he will give us very specific instructions and he has he has it's in his writings it's in his discourses it's in the guidance that he has given other people it's in the guidance that he gives each of us he gives us the blueprint for how to live our lives and how to travel closer to realizing that innate divinity and i think that once we sort of adjust our focus to that then everything else that we seek in the world will be added to us but and and you know things like um you know things like whatever we must do in the world you know qualities like when we have that implicit faith then along with that comes acceptance and along with that comes the ability to say swami i will accept what you give me whatever it is it's good it's bad it's uh you know these are judgments i make i will try to accept everything that you give me and i just wanted to um you know when soon after we were married he gave us a a a passage that he had written on his letterhead and um I, if if you permit i'd like to just read that it's very very uh, small but it's a it 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 sort of encapsulates the journey it says and i quote great souls never lose their balance by preserving our calm we can always turn the stumbling blocks into stepping stones never never let the feeling of helplessness cross your mind when one realizes his own self to be the all he cannot desire but simply enjoys everything as his and he gave this to us like i said um you know i think a year or two after we were married and 
I remember looking at it and reading it and obviously the first part was fairly easy to understand because all of us have difficulties and certainly we had our share of difficulties you know in those those uh those few years where, where there were a lot of difficult challenges so it was clear to at least what i thought is it was clear to understand what the stumbling blocks are and how we overcome them that was clear but i had no idea what he meant by the second sentence when one realizes his own self to be the all i had no idea what that meant and you know, so we framed it, he gave it to us. So we framed it and it's on the wall of our puja room. And every few months I would go back to that and I would read it again and I would puzzle over it again and um, still not make any headway in terms of what the, the second part meant. But I, you know, and this is the journey that he leads us on because over time, it's kind of like, you know, here is this light and you are moving like this. So you get a different viewpoint as you go on in life and as with your the experiences, with what you learn, with what you imbibe, what you, when you bring Swami into your mind and your heart and reflect and, and, and you know, think of him all the time, without you even knowing it, there is this journey that happens within. And so... I've, I've realized over the last few years that, oh, now I'm starting to get a glimmer of understanding of what he means by that second sentence. And really what he means is, I think that this is the purpose of all of our journeys. He means stepping stones that we need to overcome are not only the difficulties we might encounter in life, but they are our inner enemies. The things that we uh, are negative qualities that we must overcome to journey further. And I think the core of his message, what I have come to understand, is that not only are we all divine, but we are all one. And he wants us over and over again. Once I started thinking about it, you realize that in every single discourse, every Vahini, every uh, you know, uh, chapter in Satya Sai speaks, every discourse that he gives, or he's always talking about the Atma. He's always talking, he's addressing us as embodiments of divine Atma. And so I, I have come to kind of think that really that's what he's trying to get us to. He has poured all his love and his care and his concern on us collectively, because he wants us to move to this realization. And he's explained everything. He's explained how we are made up as, uh, as human beings. We are you know, the body, we are the senses, we are the mind, we are the intellect, we are the atma. And he has explained how you know, each of these uh, different parts can actually, um, can actually obscure our view or our, our uh, view of our own inner light. And everything that we do, all the sadhanas, the meditation, the namasmarana, the seva, all of them are exercises to clean this mind and clean the antakarana, really, so that we can, um, you know, understand and get closer to who we really are. So this is the priceless, priceless treasure that he is um, trying to teach us. And I also, I think, find that it's it's extremely practical and I feel that uh, 
you know, we, if the more that we explore the practicality of this idea, it will just help us live a more balanced life with more equanimity, not buffeted by ups and downs so much. So, um, so I'll stop there. As, as you can see, it's a subject dear to my heart, but I'll, I'll stop there. Sister Ramya, that was so beautifully explained, so simply put. And you really, you really covered the, the essence of why this avatar has come. And while you were speaking, it reminded me of a very humorous saying that somebody shared with me, that in the beginning, Swami hooks you, and then he cooks you, and then he barbecues you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is, that, is, that is very true, very true. Certainly, certainly have experienced that, <laughs> yes. But yes, it's all it, all out of out of love, you know, just like a just like a mother. You can't you can't you know, it's love and discipline. Love it. Yeah. Wonderful. And it, it ties in nicely with what you've said, that he gives us what we want so that we can want what he has really come to give, which is liberation, which is uh, realization that I am God, I'm not different from God, that we are divine and that is really the journey and as you so rightly said it's a journey from eye to eye but it has to happen from within the journey mm -hmm. is always within and as you also highlighted when you begin to understand and practice to that state where you can function from that atmic level you begin to see the whole of life totally different Priorities. yeah yeah you want to expand a little bit on that? I think it's just, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, and, and uh, please, I do not uh, absolutely want to give any sort of impression that I'm anywhere close. I think it's just, um, you know, kind of uh, the recognition of the beauty of what Swami says, because if you can see that, um, you know, and, and again, this is a, this is a, a I, you know, keep trying to practice and I fail and I try again and I fail, but I think it's to maybe just keep going. And for example, he gives a very beautiful analogy when he says that consider that your thoughts or your grief or your fear or negative thoughts are like um, the trail or, or like a plane or a bird that passes through the sky. So it passes through the sky, but it leaves no trace beyond as it, as it, even when you see a jet in the sky and there's those contrails, after a while, everything disappears. And he says specifically, you know, let your thoughts be like the, let your mental firmament be that so that the thoughts just pass through, but they leave you unaffected. And then when you think about, okay, well, how is that possible? Then you start kind of getting a glimpse that maybe we are different from our thoughts. They're not us. We are different from our senses. They're not us. We are different from our body. They're not us. So then it kind of makes you start questioning yourself. Okay, who am I really? And so, you know, one of the most profound teachings that Swami 
conveys or tries to convey over and over again. You know, he tells us, your mind is a mad monkey. It's a, you know, and, and don't identify with it. Don't, don't follow it. And the reason he tells that is us, us that because it's a very practical thing for living a, a, a balanced life. I have to say one, one, one other, I'm sorry, Brother Fies, one more thing that I, I just yes, wanted please. to mention is that I think that, you know, I, I think when, if you, uh, you know, as, as I have cultivated, uh, you know, sort of a, a more focus on this, I find that, you know, your, your sort of focus on other things naturally falls away. So if you are, if you fill your heart, and this is what Swami says all the time, you fill your heart with Swami, with any deity or any light that appeals to you or that speaks to you, then some of the other things fall away. So it ultimately at our stage in, in at least speaking for myself at my stage, I think the biggest thing is just faith, faith and namasmarana all the time. And, you know, focusing really on, on uh, what Swami says over and over again, let's take that part seriously too. And when we do, we have to also be prepared for the fact that's, that being on the spiritual path is not all light and love and laughter. There's, there's that, but it also takes courage to be different from those people around you. It takes a certain grit to be able to stick to the path. It takes a certain, um, you know, uh, you know it, it ultimately comes down to faith. So am I going to have faith in this, um, beautiful avatar, this God of mine, um, even if it takes me away from what, you know, the common sort of course of life is. Sairam. Very, very beautiful sharing, Sister Ramya. And as you were talking about the plane and the bird and not leaving any trace, it, it brought back to memory a very beautiful saying of Swami where he says, let the wave of memory mm -hmm the storm of desire and the fire of emotion pass through the system without affecting your equanimity. So yes, that's, that's one of my favorites. Thank you, Brother Fies, for bringing that up. Yes. Yeah, being that eternal witness, but not getting involved, living in the world, but not letting the world live in you to the point where you become attached or infected very very beautiful sharing yeah it's very difficult i mean it's a challenge i think and and you know i think that is that is the beauty of the journey you you kind of you kind of try your best you fall you try your best you fall and um i think um it, it takes i think it takes lifetimes but it's um it's just a wonderful um it's wonderful to, to I, I, you know, the, the gift of knowing what the goal of life is, is, is so profound. And that is all, that is what Swami has taught us. You know, I think he has given us this, this pearl, this, you know, this, uh, this jewel that we really need to focus on. And you made such a significant point because, you know, on the spiritual part, as we begin to practice we will fall many times. We will make mm -hmm. mistakes. And that is all good because even in the falling and in the mistakes, there is also learning and growth taking place. So it's important not how much times we fall, but how much times we're able to pick up ourselves and continue the journey and persevere 
I see himself and and um, reach to the point where <clears throat> stop not until the gold is reached. So no matter how much times you fall, you get back up with that increased fervor and vigor and you persevere, you practice, you detach. His grace is there and you arrive at the gold. So even in the falling, there are lessons to be learned along the path. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think sometimes the, the falling is as important as anything else because it's only those things that make you really introspect. Okay, what, what did I do wrong? You know, how did it, how did this happen? What should I have done differently? I mean, I think, you know, there's been so much introspection because, uh, you know, one is constantly failing, right? So, uh, you know, you can just, you, you just have to keep trying, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, sister, for sharing that. So, Sister Ramya, you are an infectious disease physician, medical officer. You've been very much involved in your practice. You've been serving Swami through this particular means. You've attended and volunteered in many medical camps in Puttaparthi, the Philippines, Kazakhstan, and the U.S. Share a little bit about that experience going into, let's say, a country like Kazakhstan, which is predominantly Muslim. What is a side doctor? What is that experience like going into a country like this to do a medical camp as a saver? Yes, thank you for the question. Yeah, it, it, you know, that was was one of the most beautiful experiences of our lives. I was fortunate to share it with my children and my husband, all four of us uh, went to this camp. And um, I think, you know, being in a Muslim country um, was interesting. That was the first time that I had ever, ever had that experience of actually being part of a Psy uh, mission in um, a predominantly uh, a Muslim country. And so we basically did not, um, you know, there were, there were no pictures of Swami, there were no, um, you know, none of the usual things that we're used to, like Aarti or, or, or anything like that, anything that would sort of make it of a more, you know, um, you know, give it, give it a, a sort of a more religious or any sort of flavor, or spiritual flavor, we didn't have that. But um, I tell you, we learned so much from the other devotees who actually set up the camp. So we, uh, so this was in Kazakhstan. Interestingly, it occurred in a place called Sairam. It's spelled S-A-Y-R-A-M. And uh, it uh, is one of the oldest communities in, in, uh, in that part of Asia. And it's been, been around for a couple of thousand years actually and so as, as it is the name was very was a real draw but honestly you know the the devotees who actually uh, set up the camp and acted as our translators and all of those um, uh, you know multiple tasks that needed to be done these were people who came from Russia they came from Kazakhstan they came from Azerbaijan they came from different places and all of them had one thing in common, which was their devotion to Swami. And I tell you, Brother Fais, it was one of the most moving experiences for all of us 
to see Swami's glory reflected in the love of these people. I mean, many of them had never been to Prashanti Nilayam. They had never seen Swami physically. They uh, basically, um, you know, all of them, you know, for, for example, we met a young, uh, a young uh, man of 23 years old who said that, um, you know, he, since he knew of Swami, he's basically completely become vegetarian. He's given up all other habits. And he said how, you know, that means that, you know, people around him say, you're not a real Kazakh because you don't eat meat. And, um, you know, they've, they've really embraced the, the sort of guidelines and instructions that Swami gives to such an extent. And all they want to do is, is help in some way in the name of Swami. It was the most moving thing. And then the other, the other part is that, you know, like Swami says, the language of the heart is universal. So we, even though we did not speak a word of Russian, we did not speak a word of Kazakh, we did not speak a word of any other local language, and many of them did not speak English, we shared our love of Swami and as Swami always does, he's the one who is the glue that brings all of us together, that keeps us together. There was such a sense of shared purpose and shared, um, you know, wanting to, to, uh, to, to sort of participate in the seva, all um, in Swami's name with not a picture of Swami in sight. It was, it was an amazing experience amazing experience and that's even without getting to the patients themselves but just the just the uh, just the uh, our fellow devotees we learned so much from them oh thank you very much for sharing that that was so touching and inspiring sister ramia so being an infectious disease physician i want to pose a question now on a, the current situation with the pandemic as mm. it continues to affect the world in so many myriads of ways. Um, I'm going to just put two or three questions in one so that you could probably uh, answer, I, I hope, to the best of your ability. So, you know, this pandemic has taken the world by storm. It has affected every aspect of our lives in so many different ways. There have been so many deaths, so many... Um, a loss of job, economic depression, you know, there have been so many things that have happened on an individual level, a family level, and as a national level. What is your professional opinion in terms of one, what really is this virus all about? Um, maybe we can chat a little bit about how does one become infected, how we can, what are some of the preventative measures we can practice? What is your take on the vaccine as opposed to taking it and not taking it? And finally, what are some of the spiritual lessons from your perspective that we are learning or can be learned from this global pandemic that is affecting us? I hope I'm not putting too much in <laughs> I was going to say, it's a, it's the whole two years <laughs> all in one question, Brother Fais. <laughs> No, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, I think we, it, it has been such an experience for all of us, a completely globally shared experience. But um, let me see if I can uh, just go back and, and take them one by one. So in terms of the virus, I think as, as probably, um, you know, 
all of us know by now, it is a coronavirus, which is the type of virus that causes the common cold. But this one is a little bit different. It's, it's related to a couple of uh, other viruses that have caused pandemics or epidemics in the past. And um, I think um, the, the uh, you know, uh, as, as everyone probably knows, there's, there's a big debate about how it originated. But there's no doubt that viruses, by their very nature, the genetic material constantly combines and recombines. And so when it recombines in a way that, and, and certainly there's some sharing of these viruses uh, uh, between humans and other species, whether it be birds or animals or reptiles, etc. So, of course, there's, there's the, the theory that, um, you know, potentially the, the origin of the SARS-CoV-2 was uh, in in a, a, a bat or, you know, there've been various theories, but in any case, the, I think the important thing is that this is a virus that is sufficiently different from what our immune systems have been used to, that it basically caught everybody off guard. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody's immune system off guard. The, our, our, we, we, our immune systems had never seen this particular virus. And so, and it's a respiratory virus, which means that the way that it's transmitted is through talking, through laughing, through aerosols, basically, and droplets. And so that is, um, um, you know, the reason why, A, it's so highly transmissible, because whenever we're talking or, or laughing or sneezing or coughing or anything, we generate so many uh, particles, these microscopic particles into the air. And those particles contain live virus. So when somebody else inhales these, uh, this aerosol, which we all do. I mean, we're, we're we're in the normal course of events. We're usually so close to each other when we talk to each other, or when we're having dinner together, or we're at a meeting, or something like that. There's a lot of uh, you know transmission of these viral particles, and so when another person inhales them, they are uh, they infect the cells of the the passageways and into the in, and and the lungs and so they particular they hook onto these cells through the receptor that we've we've heard a lot about and um so the um and so that's the way that the virus enters the cell and then once it's there it replicates it literally takes over the machinery of the cell replicates then releases more and more uh, virions into the circulation with then go and uh, infect other cells through the ACE2 receptor, et cetera. So I think we're all pretty familiar with the sort of basics of how that happens. And I think what we are seeing, we truly are living through, um, you know, we haven't seen a pandemic like this since the 1918 influenza pandemic that swept the world. And, and you know, at that time there was no, uh, there was nothing to combat it because even the principles of transmission were not well known and neither did, were there any vaccines or anything else to combat it. So the, so as you say, it has devastated, um, you know, countries, regions, peoples, lives, everything. There's so much devastation that this virus has brought, um, not only um, physically through all the so many deaths and, 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 and really, um, 
even for people who recovered the ongoing physical symptoms that they have that we now call long COVID, but also, of course, because of the, uh, you know, there's been so much economic devastation, social devastation, isolation, etc. And unfortunately, you know, much as medical science has evolved, we still, in this pandemic, we're going back to real basics, such as staying apart from each other, you know, keeping our aer aerosols and droplets contained through the use of masks. And really, as you remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, that's really all we had. We literally had to keep physically distant, stay away from each other, wash our hands, you know, wear masks all the time and so on. The difference now, of course, is that we've been lucky enough that we now, you know, science has responded incredibly quickly. Uh, there are now multiple vaccines that are um, active against the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus. And now the, the even more exciting thing is not only are there um, infusion therapies that are available, like where if somebody is at high risk for, for developing severe disease, they can actually receive an infusion of antibodies that work against the virus. And most exciting now is that, that uh, very recently, two oral antiviral drugs have been approved under emergency use authorization by the FDA just in the last week of December, actually. And so these are now um, being uh, made available uh, uh, across the country. Um, and one of them particularly is uh, highly active against uh, SARS-CoV-2 and goes a long way to preventing hospitalization and, and death. And so I think, um, you know, one of your other questions was uh, how best can we combat it? I think it always begins with um, just taking care of your health. Like we know uh, very clearly that uh, people who, um, you know, are diabetic, they're hypertensive, they are, you know, significantly uh, overweight, they have other causes of immunosuppression, um, they have other intercurrent, uh, you know, illnesses, all of these things, the older people, all of these things make somebody more vulnerable to severe disease or even death with this particular virus. So I think the first thing is to take care of yourself as best as one can, make sure that any condition that you have is under control and, you know, eat well, rest well, you know, keep a healthy um, emotional and mental attitude because that gives a lot of strength also. But in addition to that, I think it, there's no doubt that things like masking are essential to preventing the transmission of aerosols Things like um, vaccination is really key um, because the science is indisputable that um, not only are they well tolerated, but they, they actually reduce the, um, the, uh, the likelihood of severe illness leading to hospitalization or having to get on a ventilator or even dying by a very significant amount. And what we've also now learned is that we, um, you know, initially, um, many of us have rece received the first two doses in the series, but we've also learned that over time, uh, usually five, six months, the level of antibodies and immunity to this virus wanes. And so that has resulted in um, 
the recommendation to take booster vaccines now um, after five months, certainly after six months. And, you know, in this country and others like us, we're very fortunate, very fortunate that we have a lot that is available. And I would really urge people, if they haven't already, to be vaccinated. These mRNA vaccines are very, very highly effective and um, and get boosted, you know, do what you can to to protect yourself. Uh, I think it's not only important for ourselves, our loved ones, but it's also a seva that we can do for society at large because we may not be able to help in many specific ways, but we can help by keeping other people safe by, you know, enhancing our own immunity, getting vaccinated, staying masked, all of these things are really important. So Sister Rami, in addition to what you said, and thank you so much for that uh, sharing for us to obtain a, a better understanding of, of the virus and how it works and the, the effect of the vaccine. But from your perspective as a medical professional, as well as an aspirant on the spiritual part, what are some of the spiritual lessons we can learn from this global pandemic? Mm. Yeah, I think that has been a question that we've all asked ourselves, right, uh, over the past two years. Um, so I, I look at it a couple of different ways. Number one, I think to myself that um, I don't know how, how um, you know, how much you, you have read about the beginning of Swami's medical mission. So back in 1956, when he began his first hospital, there was nothing in Puttaparthi. They had maybe paracetamol, they had some vitamins, they had some antacids, and that was it. And so in, 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 in the hospital, Swami would be there a lot to see patients and he would make, he would have uh, some of the other people make these little balls that were made out of dried herbs and you know just other things that they would put together and and dry it in the sun and then put it together and make them into these little balls that looked like pills and they would give this to people and you know make different tonics that i don't know what they were made of but basically with these you know these very few medicines swami would cure so many conditions and so many people so i always think of that, um, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because I think to myself, you know, Swami is capable of doing anything. Obviously those little dried herbs probably had no actual medicinal value potentially, but it was Swami's grace and, um, you know, his healing power that was able to heal so many conditions back in those days. He was constantly there and constantly taking care of people. So as far as the pandemic goes, you know, I've often reflected on the fact that Swami has the ability to cure this. He has the ability to stop it like that. But then, you know, he, the, the pandemic is obviously still with us and it hasn't gone anywhere. And so I think that for me, a lot of it comes down to faith. And we just, um, one of the things that we sort of have to hang on to is the fact that he is very much here. He is very much here. And all, everything that is happening is part of his plan and part of his will. 
And I think part of what I have learned is that even when there are circumstances which make no sense, circumstances which you wish were different, circumstances which make so many people in difficulty or sad, the only thing that we can do is hold on to Swami, pray to him, pray, 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 because prayer is very powerful and um, do the best that we can to help each other. But I think some of the lessons really have been not only the faith to cultivate faith and hold on to it uh, more strongly than ever, but also the value of introspection. I mean, I think Swami has really in some ways wanted us to just stop doing things and just be quiet a little bit, be still a little bit, introspect much more, try to focus on him more than the outside world, you know, and, and again, you know, do what we can in all of our different ways, whether it's through your profession, whether it's through community services, whether it's through providing food, helping a neighbor do something, whatever it is, we help each other as much as we can and realize that all of us at the end of the day, all of us are together in this, all of us are affected, all of us are equally vulnerable. And the only way that we can all survive is really to look after each other, send love to each other, even when we can't be together in person. These qualities are extremely essential and I think, um, you know, we have to focus on it more and more. We may not be able to physically go and help other people um, as much as we would like, but we can do so much in the thoughts that we produce, in the prayers that we send for people. Um, they are very powerful. And, um, you know, maybe he wants us to focus on those things, focus on him, focus on prayer, focus on, you know, improving ourselves. Thank you very much, Sister Ramya, for your very valued perspective. And finally, and this is the trillion dollar question that I keep getting when I ask this question, from your personal experience, you know, as a medical profession, as a, a devotee on the spiritual path, and what you have practiced from that basis, what can you share to others whose intention is to create a better society, a better world, a more value-based society? What can each one of us do to make this happen? Yes, as you said, it's a trillion dollar question and uh, I think uh, one that we, we all uh, strive for. But um, I think maybe um, the 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 I, I guess the place to begin is always with ourselves i mean there's just nowhere else to begin what are we going to do outside until we sort of look within ourselves and try to uh, you know try to change ourselves try to overcome so many of the negative qualities that we have try to really be more loving more compassionate more patient more you know, willing to to give of yourself and, and give up things. I think we, we must start with that. The, the other um, part of it is that, um, you know, as, as a society, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about um, how to train the head. So how do I get smarter? How do I acquire this skill? How do I, you know, um, you know, 
become this, uh, to, uh, you know, how do I do this kind of work? How do I enter this profession? What can I achieve in the world? And what what I've learned from Swami, which I think would, would help um, a lot everywhere, is that to focus on the heart, like what are we doing to train the heart? The heart is the seat of the conscience. It's the seat of, you know, all of the human values and all of the qualities that come out of that. And so I think that, um, you know, sometimes the model that EHV uses, you know, education and human values where um, that Swami has also talked about or, or taught um, and developed is, is basically the concept of three HV. So your head, your heart and your hands. And I think that society, um, I think we all, uh, let me not say society, I would say myself and, and anybody that's kind of looking to to improve ourselves and you know serve society just by being better examples, better neighbors, better parents, better siblings, whatever it is. I think um, if we remember that the thought that arises in your head must be run through your heart because your heart is where um, you are able to discriminate. Is this between what's permanent, what's transient? Is this good, is this bad? Will this hurt somebody? Will this help somebody? And so it's only when that thought is run through the heart and it's approved by the heart and your conscience that you should, uh, you know, carry it, carry it out. And so that is something that um, we are also engaged in. You know, I think society at large, certainly, but actually in, in my profession, the medical profession, I think it applies a lot. So EHV um, applied to medicine because sometimes in medicine we're, we're very focused on, you know, figuring out what the problem is and treating it and so on. And the tendency there is to forget that this condition or this is, is um, this, you know, event, uh, you know, medical event, whatever it is, has happened to a person and that person has a heart and has a brain and has a conscience. So I think the concept that we are all um, not only connected, we are all, uh, you know, made of the same light and the same divinity. And if we can kind of um, express and practice what comes from the heart more than what always comes from the head, I think maybe, maybe that will help. Sister Ramya Gopinath Rao, the Sri Satyasai Global Council, Trinidad and Tobago, expresses gratitude and appreciation to you for taking the time to share your personal journey and transformation at the Divine Lotus Feet. May Bhagwan Sri Satyasai Baba continue to bless and guide you. May you continue to be a loving instrument in His divine mission. Jai Sai Ram. Thank you so much, Brother Fais, for uh, not only this opportunity, but just this wonderful satsang to, uh, you know, to talk about our, our beloved Lord. And may he, may he be the guide that we follow all of us um, through our lives. Maybe, may he continue to light it and, and bless us uh, so that we may get closer and closer to him. Jai Sairam, and thank you again. <laughs>